Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I am the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, we have a guest host. It's Jeff Alessandrelli, director and co-editor of Phonograph Editions, and he's in conversation with Eileen Miles. Eileen Miles is the author of many books, including For Now, Evolution, Afterglow, I Must Be Living Twice, New and Selected Poems, and most recently, the new poetry collection, A Working Life. All right, let's get to it. This is Jeff Alessandrelli's conversation with Eileen Miles. So I like to be in New York for the fall, and increasingly, I've discovered June is pretty amazing, too. So it's just like, I, you know, New York is such a people, like a social city and such a cultural thing. So I just feel like I, I don't like to miss it, you know. And so, but Marfa is a great place to just to live and to write. And so, I mean, like this week, I... I was in Berlin last week because I, I was invited by the American Academy to um, to come and be there for a couple of weeks and give a talk. And I did that. And before that, I was at Mount Holyoke judging a prize. And before that, I was in Marfa for most of from January until March, I get or April. I don't know, whenever, whenever a week or two ago was. But um, with a couple of trips back to New York to do things that I couldn't not do. And so, I mean, does the traveling wear on you or does it kind of stimulate you? Well, it's like I never want to go to the other place. You know, I'm always feeling like this is the place, you know, and I want to be here. And why do I have any plan to go there? And so and then, I, you know, but I've usually set up a, a schedule and reasons why I have to go to the other place. And then when I go, I'm always like, this is incredible, you know. Though sometimes with a little bit of sometimes I land and I'm like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? But it usually quickly passes and I celebrate the new location. So I like, I mean, I think it, it suits me to have two kinds of home homes. Part in part, I mean, I love my apartment, but it's small. It's like a it's it's weird. I'm 73 this year. Last year I was 72. And what was really funny about being 72 was that I was living in the apartment I got when I was 27. Oh. So it's just like the place is sort of elaborate and confining at once. So it's like I needed a bigger space and I'm lucky enough to have one. Well, that, and that comes out a lot in for now. I mean, right. The kind of nature of wanting something, but also wanting what you have. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I guess how does writing shift, you know, depending on where you are, like, I guess in, in Marfa, do you work differently as compared to in New York City? Yeah, I mean, New York, I mean, if I'm really hell bent and disciplined, I can work on something that I consider my most important writing project. But generally speaking, I can do assignment and I can always I can write a poem in either place, depending on when the poem, you know, arrives. But Marfa is much better for like long projects that. I mean, the way I always think of it is in Marfa, I can I can finish a thought. You know, I can have a thought and I can keep having it until I get to it. Whereas New York, it's always fractured. And it's part of what I love. And that comes out, though, in the work. I mean, I think it must. I mean, literally, it's like if I have to, if, you know, like say I want to work on a novel 
a lot in the next year or two. And so I'll probably be there a lot or else and and or I'll change my way of being in New York. Like I'll really have to figure out how to. Well, it's like you just have to get up early in New York if you want to work. Right. So like I know you're working on that long novel and that's specifically a Marfa book. Or would you start working on it tomorrow if you had the time and inclination? I mean, I would. I would. I would. But it's like I I will admit I'm not much in the headspace of it. New York, just by its very nature, makes me I mean, like I die this, you know, there's a performance like a dance performance I can't go to tonight. And it just feels like the worst thing in the world. I mean, there's always that like desire to like, Oh God, I really want to see that. And you, you first moved to Marfa when? 2015. I went for one of those land and I'd never been there. I'd always heard about it. And was like, why can't I go to, you know? And I got, I got invited to one of those land residencies. And almost as soon as I got there, I was like, this is the place. I just knew that it totally worked for me. Yeah. And I mean, you've, you, how long were you in San Diego for? Five years. Okay. So, so, I mean, have you lived other places, San Diego, Marfa, but other than, I mean, other than that, has it been New York city? Provincetown. Provincetown. I had a girlfriend who owned a house in Provincetown. So for four years during the time of that relationship, we spent half the year there. It was great. I love pizza. It's still, it's still one of my places. I go there every year. I always go there. And now as you get kind of, are you nostalgic as you get older? Are you more honest with what the situation was like? I would, I would say sort of, yeah. I mean, maybe the latter. I'm not, I'm not so nostalgic. I mean, I feel really grateful that I came to New York when I did, and that New York was like what it was like when I got here. You know, because it just really afforded, you know, obviously it afforded a whole generation of us uh, a really good launchpad for being artists. Right. Good launch pad for dying too. You know, it's just like it was. It was treacherous in its way. You know, just because of the level of excess and you know performance, performative nature of excess too. But but when you're there, you don't like. I mean, it's a it's a it's a vibrant city in the way that you don't like New York City for you now. It doesn't have vestiges of the past like around every corner. Well, it does. I mean. It just, you know, I'll say that it's just like that kind of feeling comes and goes. I go through periods. Generally, it's more like if I'm going through a break. If something else is sad, New York is sad, you know, because it's like I can I can go into that state. And if I'm, you know, walking to dinner or back from dinner with a few of friends who have lived in New York as long as I have. And it's the weekend and it's so fucking crowded with like bros and college kids and just like a whole you know, we all snarl and, you know, and all that. And, but, um, and, but, you know, I mean, like, I think you're referring to the softer kind of melancholy and that's for sure here is, I mean, it's even in my apartment, but so I think it, it depends a lot on how I'm feeling, you know? Sure. I guess I'm curious. So like I, I'm, I'm from Nevada um, and I grew up in a pretty non kind of literary environment. Um, but now I'm very, frankly, kind of immersed in, you know, writing, art, literature to a degree. Um, but my closest friends growing up were, you, you know, they, they weren't writers and they weren't really interested in literature. And I kind of sometimes forget about that. Um, but my my close friend, Larry, who I was really close with in high school and kind of through early college, I mean, he's a plumber now. And I hadn't talked to him in like 10 years and he out of the blue 
kind of texted me and called me. We hadn't, you know, we hadn't spoken. And I mean, it's interesting. Somebody's like life where some of like the stuff that I take for granted, like who, who got published, where, who did this stuff that I seem like, it seems like it matters to such a degree. It's so like, I could win the Pulitzer prize tomorrow and he wouldn't, you know, just be like, cool. Like, you know, that's great to hear. I mean, do you have people in your life at this point who are kind of know you as Eileen and not as Eileen, the, you know, famous poet? Well, yes. No, I mean, it's like I grew up around Boston and people were really pretty interesting because they, um, you know, like my college friends, like one of my best friends is a retired um, cop. She was a like like yeah, she was a detective. She has kind of a high up job, but um, and she was very Cambridge. She came from Portuguese Cambridge, but um, but she was the person who turned me on to Cortazar and a lot of foreign movies. Like like as a as a European American, she just she knew culture and cared about it. You know, so it's just like everybody, at least the people like the friends I had in college, and and you know some of some friends from high school follow art and some don't you know i mean i think everybody knows that i'm a poet and i think they're proud of me and i think they you know and i don't think anybody it's really funny i don't think anybody doesn't connect that to who i was in high school or college either you know because i definitely was one of those kids the way i got over in high school because i was always getting trouble and i got bad grades was to do a create nuns were really open to creative projects you could always not fail if you wrote a play or something, you know, it was kind of amazing, you know? And so it was like, I was a bit of a ringmaster in high school for like, let's do a, a, let's do a fake band, you know, let's, let's do it, you know, kind of stuff. So it's like, there was always a weird, and there, you know, there was definitely, there was a boy in high school who was a poet, you know? So it was like very working class, but every, my town was very mixed class. There were upper middle class people. There were people in the projects and there were a lot of working class people and plenty of, I mean, people, everybody read and, you know, we, I mean, we were near Cambridge. We followed bands, you know, we, we, you know, were, we, you know, move foreign movies weren't far, you know, so it was just like, I was close to the culture that I went into, but, but it still was, you know, the bus ride from Arlington to Cambridge was as long as, you know, it's so funny, you know, like Boston to New York, not that far, really far, you know, and that's in that same way, like other boroughs historically used to be really different cultural, you know, realities. And I definitely, you know, to, to get on the bus to Hobbit Square was not, was what only certain kids did, but, but many of them were my friends, you know. And so there wasn't like overt division in any way, shape or form. I mean, not in terms, I mean, like there were people that, you know, I went to my high school reunion and I don't think anybody knew I was a writer. Oh, really? Which high school reunion? Arlington Catholic High School. You no, know? but what was what, it oh, like? Was it, I guess it was 25. Oh, gosh. What was that experience like? Horrible. Horrible. Really? Yeah, it was homophobic, deeply homophobic. I mean, I, my girlfriend at the time made me bring pictures of her and our our animals, you know, and she said, show them your family, you know, and, um, and when I tried to, people were like, you know, and it was just, it was like, you could tell that people had talked that, you know, that Eileen was a dyke and that was weird, you know, and there was, you know, people, it was interesting because people had very, very much stayed to the class 
they had come from, it seemed. It seemed like the most wealthy people married the most wealthy people, and they just were older, uptight versions of themselves, even if they were bad in high school or having nervous breakdowns. You know, but of course, there were subsequent stories. I mean, I saw this couple, they were very upper middle class, and he subsequently killed himself, you know, and I was like, but again, you knew you knew that person, and it wasn't impossible. It's just that they had, you know, they looked like they had gone past that, but they hadn't. Um, but it was like, you know, there were just things that, stories about parts of my family that people brought up like they were there for entertainment, and I was really offended, you know. And I don't know. Why did you decide to go in the first place? A little bit of pressure from my friend. You know, like there were certain friends who were like, come on, come, you know, we'll go in like that, you know. But I mean, it wasn't a good experience. I mean, do you still keep up with those folks or not really? The, well, the ones, I mean, the ones who are my friends I keep with, up with because I can't even remember if they were there or not. But, um, you know, there's, there's, there's just like three or four people from high school I'm friends with and a, a similar number from college. Because I stayed close. I mean, I commuted to college. I didn't even go away to college. So I was still friends with those people. I was still drinking with my high school friends in college, you know, so I didn't develop very fast. Were you sober 25 was at that reunion? Were you sober at that point? Yeah, yeah. So it was. Okay. Yeah, and that was actually, and that was part of it. It was like, there was a slideshow of memories and the person who was narrating it was clearly an alcoholic. Her mother had been an alcoholic. She was an alcoholic. And she was just bringing up shit about my family like it was totally cool. And it was it was really bad, you know. And I, I sat there and told her to fuck herself. And it was just and people were like, Why are you getting so upset? And I was like, just you know. But she didn't realize it that she was being offensive. She was drunk. She was drunk. She, was drunk. she thought it was funny. Huh. Yeah, I mean, that stuff sticks with you. I mean, because you obviously still remember it kind of pretty deeply. Um, I guess, you know, I I first came to your work. I mean, I'm 39. And I mean, the first book that I got was Some Tree. So sorry, Tree. Sorry, Tree. Gosh, I have them all here. I got, it, I got Ash it right here. John Ashbery is Some Trees. Some Trees, Sorry, Tree. Sorry. But... um. I never actually read A Fresh Young Voice from the Plains um, until this summer. I'd never seen the actual book, but I was in Denver and I had a friend who had it, I guess like a first edition. Um, and so I, I read it um, and I guess I'm curious kind of, you know, poetry for you, it seems to be like a daily practice. Is that true, I guess? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I write something every day. I don't know if it's a poem. But I mean, you know, I already spent three hours today recording a po recording poems, you know, in a video. So it's just like it's weird. I feel like my life is very much um, I'm either writing or engaging in some way. It's very rare that I don't do something. But was that the same back then, too? I mean, um... oh, yeah, because then I really had something to prove. I mean, I came to New York and I had this crazy idea to be a poet. I mean, that's what I came to New York to do. That was like, and, and um, I had made my career decisions you now. And so I just had to keep a symbol. I had to keep putting all the pieces in that direction, you know, otherwise I existentially was lost. You know, I mean, I think I was, I was a warrior and, um, and I was very concerned about what I was going to do with my life. And so when I had made this poetry decision, 
I just thought I just had to, you know, push. I mean, I had friends who weren't poets, obviously, and I worked in bars and had went, you know, I had different sorts of friends, but it was just like, it was real serious that I had to keep kind of get out there and meet the people and do it, you know, and, and it was easy, you know, because the, you know, the back of page of the village voice was covered with poetry readings. Hmm. You know, it was just like, it was such a part of the culture at that time. All you had to do is like, look at the voice and think, okay, it's Tuesday night. I'll go to this weird person's house. It's Wednesday night. I'll go to this cafe on the Upper West Side. It's, you know, I mean, you really could trot around New York every night with your little spring binder of poems and read and open mics. And I was, I would do that. And like, I quit drinking at 33 and my literary life. Me too. Me too. I know. I know. But my literary life changed as a result of that, you know, like um, in a fairly kind of deep way that I, you know, I, I, Kind of took it in stride. I got I said ups and downs. Was that this? Did you go to open mics as much? Did your work? Well, no. By thirty three, I didn't go to open mics anymore. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I, I had a. Did I have? I guess I had a couple of skinny. I had you know a I had a few books, and I was. Um, I mean, I think I was the director of the poetry project when I was thirty three. So just the fact that I got sober meant that suddenly I had to figure out how to make a living. And when I was drinking, I didn't really have that problem. It seemed like it just came and bit my ass. I, I would, or I would just roll to the next simple, desperate job. It seemed like, and my life, you know, if I couldn't figure things out, I had friends who would pay my rent, you know, cause it was, you know, it was, it was a hundred, two hundred dollars a month or something, you know? Um, and when I got sober, it just immediately didn't work that way anymore. I could not figure out how I was supposed to make a living. And, you know, and I did, you know, I cleaned apartments. I worked, you know, I had, I mean, I released balloons at Diana Ross concert in Central Park. I, you know, I did all this crazy stuff for a year and then they were hiring at the Poetry Project. And I thought, well, I'm actually qualified for this job. And I applied and then, oh no, I, I got it. I was like horrified that I was hired, you know. But so my life really changed because instead of being a bad kid at the poetry project, I was the director and it was really um, very anxiety making, really hard, but, but amazing and interesting and fruitful and just a great experience. So, I mean, and your, your writing kind of, you just went hand in hand, I guess, with like your, your changes in life to a degree. Yeah, I mean, I wrote, when I got sober, I wrote Not Me. That's pretty much, I mean, it's, there's some poems on the drunk side, but most of them are on the sober side. And so that, I mean, I think that book is really about a transition. And the transition, which I never really say, is, is sobriety. Because I didn't, I didn't die. I didn't die. That was the big thing. You know, I was, right. ready, I was ready to die at 33. And when you put together the selected, did you think about, I mean, did, can you see, like, I guess, the alcoholism in certain poems? I just don't think about it that way. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of, I mean, once in a while, I'll be like, whoa, you know, I mean, I'll be, yeah, I'll have a, I'll get a hit of it. But when I was putting this, like, it just wasn't, it's just, it's so there that it's just a part of me. And I don't think much about it. The funniest thing about the selected is that um, someplace in the aughts, I was, approached by by an editor to give poems for a an Italian women's poetry anthology and somehow the question of what poems i wanted in italian was like really a question about what 
poems I thought were my best. It was very weird. It was just like, because I love, I mean, I love Italy then and now. And I just thought Italy seemed like the definition of the beautiful. And so I made this little collection of poems for this person. And the funny part is they, they didn't use me in the anthology. I was dismissed, but, um, or, or didn't make it through the edit. But, um, but that became the core of my selected. And then I kept adding into it, you know. Sure. Um, do you go back to early work that often unless you have to do something like that? I mean, I feel like I'm invited to because certain poems like Peanut Butter, I have poems that people just like. And I'm all, I actually get requests at readings to read them. So there, I feel like, and also I, there, there are early poems there's a few of them that I just think of as my favorite poems I've written and I like to read them, you know, really, they're often short, you know, but they're just, because I, they, they, they give me a way to talk about what it is that I think I'm doing in my poems. Yeah. I mean, I guess reading a fresh young voice from the plains and then reading a working life. And I mean, you know, reading, I guess a lot of the later work is, I guess I just thought about having the pros and cons of having a style. Like, I mean, your, your poems are very identifiable in a way that I think a lot of people gravitate towards. Right. Um, at the same time, do you feel like, I guess, once you found what you were kind of looking for poetically that, I don't know, maybe certain people kind of were less interested? Well, I mean, for one thing, I think that, I don't think I exactly found a style. I just think my poems sound like me. Like I decided to write in the vernacular that was mine. And and, and it wasn't a simple vernacular, but um, it, it's a very particular voice. And you, I don't like to use the word voice, but it's like, um, it is, you know, like it's put together in a certain way. And, and, and I do everything in it. It's sort of like a, an instrument that I came up with and I, but I think the style of the poems often change and become more over, especially when I started to write prose, they became more abstract and less, less narrative. But somebody that, I, that I've known for years and, um, and practically think of as family was, was quoted secondhand in a review of my work once saying like that, I just write the same poem all the time. And it was said dismissively, you know, and it really, I mean, I was, I guess I was hurt because first of all, I thought, I, I thought they would have had my, something better to say about my work than that you know but um and then of course the person who quoted it in the review i thought why did you do that you know what i mean like you're kind of writing a positive re- you know but it's like but i know i mean in, in the 80s when language poetry was on the rise i mean i you know i'd known charles and james sherry and bruce already for you know almost 10 years when they started to you know really come together and and there was definitely a sense that that though they liked me, my poems were not interesting, you know. And and later on, by the time we got to conceptualism and Marjorie Perloff, remember her going on about how Vanessa Place, her work was not transparent and my work was transparent. And again, I was just, I was like, fuck you. I mean, it's such a, I think it's just a very shallow read of my work because my work is actually pretty complex, you know, in terms of what's getting unloaded and, what's I mean I what's there and what's not there and and I just think that's a a really shallow reading of the work you know um so I mean finally I could give a shit what 
You know what I mean? Like, and, and again, in, in the interesting, even with language poets, you know, we've been, you know, we friends, I've said a few things publicly that I think have offended certain people in a language. To me, I think I talked about, there was a conference a few years ago and I talked about maybe language poets not being very about the body and sexual and they kind of missed AIDS in a way. And, you know, when they were, you know, and I think it was, I think it was true, but, but I can see why I'm sure every one of them didn't. And I'm sure every one of them didn't disavow their bodies and every, you know, but I think what was interesting was through all that time, there were always things, I mean, people are so interesting. They let you know what it is that you're doing that they care about. Like language poets love me running for president. You know, like that was, I think that was deploying class and performance and even poetry in, in the right way. You know, I was like, because I think finally, you know, they have a discourse and running for president feeds feeds a discourse, you know, or is a discourse, you know. And I think later, by the time, I mean, everybody's older now and nobody seems to care at all about those schools and separations, you know, but there will always be, you know, I mean, I've been in Europe and had a conceptual performance poet kind of sneer at me because I'll, I'll read a poem and I'll, talk a little bit even about the life experience that provoked the poem. I think it's interesting because you know what it is? I think it's oral history. It's like you don't put things in the poem, but I mean, so many poets, I know things about certain poems because Ted Berrigan told us, or we all. So I enjoy, and I, this poet just acted like I was really sentimental and sappy because we're, you know, and, you know, we're not, we're, artists and you don't you know make it easy for people or talk about your life you know but you know whatever was that poet american no they were i think they were norwegian oh interesting um because i actually was wondering if you could read the poem russia (laughs) as we're on this subject right i mean it's literal because i think the two times i've been to russia i followed a pile of people who had just informed everybody that every, you know, well, what the poem, what the poem says, I'll read the poem. Um, okay. Russia. I read a book and then I want to read another one about Russia, about the bathtub. I think Russia's too much like me, dry and cruel. Blue, wild, cerebral, dour. The poets there have been brainwashed by the team of white poets preceding me who explained that in America, everything's confessional except them. My intention was to muddle through my reading, not muddle, but wander, explain how I like a mind, like a spaciousness that hungers for more and can get lost inside your thereness for days. Yeah, I mean, I guess talk, you know, like, talk me through that. Well, I mean, I'm... I'm I mean, I'm thinking, I'm reflecting on our national characteristics of Russians. Russians really are um, very heavy and intellectual and judgmental. And I mean, I've gotten such a vibe from Russians. They just think Americans are stupid. And to some extent, they're right. Right. You know, I mean, they're so much more well-educated than us. And I'm very comfortable with it. And of course, they're also in the disempowered position of their language being almost secondary on their own soil. You know, in Russian cultural life, it's like you sort of have to be able to speak English, I think, maybe, you know. So I, I, you know, but I do think there's a way in which, yeah, so I was I was definitely bonding with them a little bit about that, which one wouldn't think 
that was the case, but I do feel like there was some way in which Russians were disturbing to me because I felt like they're like me, but in other contexts. But um, yeah, I mean, twice, I, I, I was just about, I was saying before, like twice I think I've been to Russia where people say, are you a confessional poet? It's like, no. And they're right. like, oh, if you're not a language poet, that's all you could be because that's what these guys just told us, you know? And it was just like, so it's really interesting that like decades later, the I feel like the, the dogma is still being shared that that this kind of this really I don't know just like my way or the highway kind of aesthetic which I just again I think it's so interesting I mean I think part of the way the world is different in poetry too is the abundance of writing programs and so every every um, every trick every bit of lore that used to be passed down in a kind of a um, you know kind of transmission that was very community-based now can be handed as a trick in a graduate program. You know, like evidence is erasures. You know, I was like, what the fuck are erasures? You know, and it just seems like something you learned when you were in your, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's such a, well, I I can't, I don't want to rant on it, but it seems like it's the, the, um, it's the kind of the most uninteresting way to do pastiche. You know, it's letting the poem do all the work, sure. you know, and just knocking out some words. I mean, it's just like, I, I get it. We've all done that. But I feel like it just isn't so much making. Anyway, there's lots of things like that, you know, like things like things got named like formal constraints. You know, suddenly, do you use formal constraints in your work? And I was like, what? I mean, the, the answer, of course, is yes. But I never would have dreamed of talking about poetry that way. You know, and I think what it is, is it's like a styles, avant-garde styles being canonized, you know, and it's in kind of, they're sort of in Turco's book of forms or something, sure. you know, but I mean, that's what happens. Things, it's professionalized to some extent, but, but my point is that all the, so that I feel like all styles are sort of in this sort of schmear right now. And I think, you know, and I think that can be, I mean, it's like an interesting poet is an interesting poet, you know, it's sort of like Ray Amantrout isn't an amazing poet because she's a language poet or maybe, or maybe, I mean, you can't take that. You can't take her out of language poetry, but I mean, she's just an amazing poet, you know, that came out, that came out of that discourse in some way, but it's still to me, it isn't solely the discourse. Right. As I guess as like a touring international poet, I mean, when you go to other places, um, you know, and where you're talking about language poetry, you're talking about conceptualism, you're talking about these things. I'm that, never, I mean, actually, I'm never talking about these things when I travel. Very rarely. It's only once in a while somebody will say like, are you, are you a, a confessional poet? Well, you know about them though. Like, I mean. And- yeah, of course. No, I mean, I, this is, yeah, we all live in, those but when artists. you go to like Russia or you go to another place, does it seem like American poetry is back 50 years ago and people are talking about Robert Lowe or not talking about him, but that's kind of what. No, no, I don't think so at all. I think um, I was when I, I in Berlin, the people were completely it was like, I mean, when somebody asked me the names of some poets that I was reading and I trotted out lazily, you know, C.A. Conrad and Ariana Rhines. I just felt the room like, what? I mean, you know, what else is new? You know, they were like, they give know. us new 
younger. I mean, the, the, the bias towards younger is a little irritating because it's sort of, I mean, because I think poets arise at all times in their lives. I mean, like one of my favorite poets, Amma Birch is great and she's like in her 50s. You know, I mean, there are poets that emerge at all points, you know, but I realized, oh, it's like, wow, I'm going to have to have a, a I, I have a list now of like younger poets ready to, you know, because I feel like it can't be that, that the one or two people that get, yeah, because people are, people are reading all over the world. You know, I mean, I think the poetry world is very, um, is really well distributed and, and nobody's asking me about, you know, Lowell or. Louise Glick or, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess those people go to other readings too. You know what I mean? Like it's not like Sharon Olds people don't go to, I mean, a person I like Sharon Olds and I've even read, I've read poems of hers that I've liked, but, but it's so like those people are not going to my readings by and large. And do you think, did you start really touring with Sister Spit in the nineties or did you do stuff when you were younger too, as much as you could? Well, I did, I did a lot of touring. I think before that, yeah, I did, I did maybe, I don't know. When did I start? Like Sister Spit was, in the, yeah, 96, 97. And I was already touring a lot, you know, because again, it was so like, I, you know, a book comes out, what do you do? Do you just wait for people to appreciate it? Mm-hmm. It always seemed to me. And again, you know, it's not that I ever, I didn't ever really want to be in a band, but I did like how they lived. And I did think, that sounds like fun to go on the road. I always thought, you know, make make poetry into what you want it to be. So that I I, and, but but Sister Spit was was um, became a part of a tour. You know, so I mean, I I toured with them in the midst of, or actually no, that was how I toured School of Fish with Sister Spit. But and the the funniest part of that tour was that we went to a we read in a gay bar in um, New Orleans. And so I was reading, I was holding my book, I was reading from School of Fish, and some drunk yelled out, you didn't write that poem, it's in a book. And I thought, whoa. I was like, I was like wait a second. I was like, what kind of book tour am I on? It was so funny. I was like, I was on the book tour that undid the book. You know, it was very, it was great. Now, but we're, I mean, I assume for... Some of the, or I mean, I don't know about a lot, but I mean, some of the readings now you're getting paid a decent amount. You're getting paid to read there and your travel accommodations. I mean, you're, you're, I guess, did you, when you were younger, I mean, I assume you read wherever for free, right? Well, somebody had to pay and and I couldn't pay. So what I would do is a combination of, you know, our, our, personal networks of friends who teaches teach in colleges wherever and find a college gig and then that would cover a bookstore nearby and so on so it was like it had to it had to add up somebody had to pay for the plane tickets or the gas or whatever you know so i kind of cobbled it together and to some extent i'm doing that i mean like publishing is not i mean grove is supporting my tour to some extent but publishing is really not publishing is not in good shape and they're really not wanting to support tours at this time. So my tour is in a way as much an active will as ever, you know, but I also have a blue flower, a speaker agency books gigs for me too. So it's sort of like the pot, the pot is bigger and richer and easier, you know, so I won't, I won't lose money. I mean, I'll make money on the tour. <laughs> 
So what was it like putting together, I guess, a working life to kind of seek to that? I mean, you know, the last poetry collection came out in 20, Evolution was 2018. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I guess putting it together, was it the same process as later, you know, some of your your later poetry collections or was it different, I guess, with the pandemic, with different things, with working on a longer book? I mean, was it still this the same kind of, you know, process that you've already kind of know to a degree? Well, you know, it's, it's sort of like I, I think about two things when I put a book together. One is is pretty much chronology. It's sort of the order in which I've written the poems often is a good order, you know, though it's, you know, like, it's like doing a reading. It's sort of like, if this is all the poems of that passage in time, what would be the first poem you would read? Not that not necessarily being chronological, but where do you want to break into the room with, you know, and then, and then a semi chronology after that, which from time to time just seems really wrong. You know, there are just moments where you're like, and then it was like, that after that is terrible. And then it's, you know, it winds up being much more like, you know, in my mind, I'm telling stories and I'm flashback, I'm flashing back, or I'm thinking about some funny stylistic thing in the poem that I think would be fun to be redundant and do that again right next to it. And, you know, and so it's sort of like, it's a, it's a playful chronology, you know, and, and, and I, you know, and, but, but the primary chronology is reading. So it's like, even though the reader doesn't necessarily open a book and read from front to back, I, I, I imagine them doing that. And that, so that I, I kind of arrange according to the pleasure of that, like the energetic pleasure of that. You know what I mean? So it's just like, I want it to keep jostling feelings and energies and things like that, you know? So it's just like, so in a way, not much different, except there was great. Like I knew that, um, it was utterly, I don't even, I don't know why, I don't even know the, the, the comparison, but when you talked about A Fresh Young Voice from the Plains, part of me thought, yeah, this is that book. Like, it's, a, it's the same book, you know? But I think, because it is the same person really standing in the room at a much later point at their li- in their life. And, um, and so there's, no, there's nothing in it but poetry, and I think I really feel like it's a little bit of a manifesto, this book, because it really is like, making poetry is like, it's a, this is a certain kind of working life, you know? I mean, it's sort of like, is it, is, is, am I the model for the life or is the, are the poems the model for me? It's sort of like, it's really sort of, there's such a relay, you know, there's such a feedback between the two. And so I felt like, um, you know, and, and, you know, truly, yeah, the pandemic was so much about time and, and flashback because it's just like, it, I just felt so thoroughly dumped into a, a, a 70s feeling that I've longed for since the actual 70s ended, you know, like that I wanted everything to stop and be quiet and be alone. And, and I had that in Texas rather than New York. Um, but it was incredible, you know, and I just, I could write a poem every time I turn my head all day long, you know, I was high on it, you know, and that was just like, wow, the best feeling. And, and then weirdly, um, I think just, there was a, just a, business thing like I was trying to show my agent and editor a piece of the novel and so I, I I cobbled together this 170 page section of the novel and then the idea was we were going to sell I was going to you know make myself financially safe we were going to get a two book deal so 
the second book had to be a book of poetry. So I put this together so fast. Like it was just the argument for there to be a book. You know what I mean? I didn't even, and I was just like, and I, I had, you know, I worked with, um, I had an assistant at the time named Will and Will and I just sat there and we just called out the poems. We just kind of like uh, 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 made it really quick. But honestly, I feel like so many things, it's like doing them quick, doing them slow and careful, they yield the same result, you know? And so then, then we send the two books to the publisher and weirdly, the publisher was so excited about the book poems and kind of, I still don't know what they think of the novel. <laughs> Strangely, the, the, the great hope of my economic life didn't seem to shake anything over a grove. I have no idea, you know, but, but weirdly, a fic- I love my editor there. Um, Peter Blackstock, and he's a fiction guy, and I love his taste in fiction. It's very good. But um, he loved this. He was just like, I don't really understand poetry, but I really like this book. So that was just very sweet from the get-go. So it had a funny, they're just little parts of the way towards being a book. And they made me, they were like, and they wanted to publish it really soon. I was like, what? It's too soon. I just finished the tour, and here we are. And I'm, you know, I'm happy with it now, but well, I think, I mean, it's, I think it has some of your best poems, or I guess I, I mean, I have quite a few, like, but could you read Put My House? Sure. Put my house inside the boat. Can we do that? Put my dog inside of your dog. Put these birds inside of yours. Put your ocean all over my mountains. Put my mountains in there. Put my dog in yours. My dog walk is safe inside your dog walk. Let me eat inside you. Let me eat your food. Let me eat your house. Put your house inside my dog. Put your dog on my boat. Naturalize. Put my heart in yours. Put my mouth on your mouth. Put my hair in yours. Let me breathe inside you. Let me smell your guts. Put your boat in my eye, let me eat your friends. Put these hours inside your hours. Eat this bird, cheap. Eat my dog's foot. Eat that ocean. Run to him or the ocean. Run to them. Hear these birds, cheap. Lie to me. Eat my foot. Put my house inside yours. In your mind, think me fly. This fly me home. Love me now. Forget your phone. Eat my heart. Run to him or the ocean. Tweet, 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 dog growl, cluck, click. Put my house right in there. Yeah, that's me looking out the window. Look at me. Bark, bark, bark. Put your heart inside that bark. Thank you. It seems like a slightly different poem. I mean, you know, some of your poems dance around longing. This one seems a little different, I guess. I mean, do you... I don't know. What was the process of writing this one, if you if you can know it? Well, it was very much a pitch to my then girlfriend who kept insisting I come to New York and be with her, that I was absolutely not going to move. And so I wanted, to, I mean, it really was just a syncretist wish to kind of merge the two existence in a really ludicrous way. So it was just like, it's a love poem. I was just like, we can do, you know, like, can we do that? Can we put this together? Put your, you know, she was on a boat. I mean, just literally, she was on the water. I was in the mountains. So it's like, it's really, the thing that's fun is that it's an entirely literal poem. 
except that it's completely insane and surreal, you know, and, um, and I, yeah, I never, I haven't written that poem before and that's fun. Like it was just like, it was, I just knew I was just being completely crazy for her benefit and who really didn't, I don't think she really got the poem or liked it. She was like, I don't really get that. You know, it's just like, it didn't, it didn't do, you know, but, um, yeah, it was really fun to write. And, and also this, you know, little details in it. Like I'm a huge Bobby, Bobby V. Do you know who Bobby V is? Uh-uh. Um, V E E. In fact, if, if you were, if you were a Bob Dylan person, you would find, I mean, Bob Dylan was in a band with Bobby V in the Midwest in the fifties or sixties. And Bobby V was a pop singer of the fifties and sixties and a really good songwriter and very cute. I mean, somebody I had a crush on when I was like in junior high and, um, and Bob Dylan truly, I mean, Bob Dylan at certain points, sometimes he would be, you know, at some event and he would give his name as Bobby V. Like, I think Bobby V in some ways is who Bob Dylan wishes he was, you know, but, um, but he's got a song that, um, that's, it's like, if you think, if you think his lips can kiss you better than my lips can kiss you, run to him, run to him or the ocean. If you think, you know, it's like a, it's a very good pop song, but it's like, and I was part of what I was doing in Marfa when I started to realize there are all these rarities in the, on the internet, you can find CD box. So I, I went and got a box set of Bobby B's songs and I was listening to it a lot. So he just kind of rolled into the, I've been waiting for a Bobby V fan. I have not found them yet. Who was like, is that Bobby V I'm dying for somebody to recognize the line. Do you find sometimes as a writer that people ask you to decode your poems and you're like, no, it's just on the page. Not, I mean, only people who are not, I mean, you know, the people who ask you, well, what do you write poems about like that? You know, and I think, you know, it's sort of like, you know, we can be nice to people. We can tell them something or other in response to that. But um, yeah, I don't think people, you know, you know, I think the most interesting conversations about my poems I ever had is with translators. Because translators really need to know what it means. And it's so interesting because when I'm, trying to answer a question i'm often thought oh, God, i don't know what that means i have no idea you know and, and then and then you sit with it for a while and you start to pick up the words and you can get under it a little bit and you start to remember what the associative train was and how how that works and they're just the most interesting conversations i've ever had about my work um and likewise i think in russia i met a translator who was translating susan howe and i wasn't at the time i wasn't i knew susan but i didn't i didn't really get or like her work that much. And so this person was getting, asking me to help them with the translation and what does this mean? And, and the conversation again, it was like, I was like, Oh, she's really interesting. You know, I really suddenly got what Susan was doing or I felt excited about what she was doing in those poems. And, you know, and I do like her work. So I think, I I don't think I get asked much with, I mean, I think every, I mean, I think most people think they know what my poems mean. You know, I don't think they're necessarily right. As people assume, you know, it's like every I is Eileen and so on. And I just think I is like a really good handheld camera. You know, I can use it for whatever I want. And like, I know Chelsea Girls just came out in French and won a book award. Did it? Best, Best foreign novel. 
Cool. <laughs> Crazy. I know 30 years after its publication. Yeah, I know, I love kind of it. a late arrival for him. Well, that's awesome, though. But I mean, did you work with, I guess, is it different in prose, too, with well, a translator? Or? Normally, I do. And I was actually quite anxious because I didn't hear from the translators who I met when I got to Paris. And it turned out they had written me questions and I missed them. And so they just and so it was kind of a gaggle of, of dykes. It was like three women sat down and figured out what they thought, you know. And, you know, one one had lived extensively in the States and her English was pretty good. But I always think I'm sure that stuff is wrong. I mean, it has to be. It has to be. I mean, it, my English. See, I think I'm really hard to translate. I don't think I mean, it disturbs me to think that somebody might think it was easy, you know, but almost particularly the prose, because it's really choppy in a particular way. But it's a purposeful way, too. I mean, which is hard to do as a writer, like... <laughs> And it's and it's sonic. There's a lot of rhymes and sound. I mean, I just often the order is really just the sound, you know. I'm trans. I love I love trans. I think translators are the smartest, most interesting people. They're incredible, you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a selflessness about it too, which is great and kind of necessary. Well, they love. They're up there with editors. They love literature. They just love it. And if you go out, if you go to a reading that a translator, you know. Translators were involved at all. Usually, they hang out with translators. They know you meet tra other translators through translators, and you go out with them afterwards. And they're just talking about books internationally, and they're just—they're so ahead of the pack. Um. So what's well? I guess what's next? You're working on the long book. You're going on tour. Like what? What do you have coming up? I mean, I, I will tell you the coolest thing I have coming up is Trieste. What's that? Trieste, a city. It's a city in oh. Italy. Okay. I mean, I've been haunted by this city like all my life. I don't know why. It's just like it's Trieste is like, you know, it was like a major port in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It was major in the Venetian Empire. You know, it's just like and Mussolini tried to use it for something. But really, it's one of those, you know, you know, when you go to a place that used to be like Buffalo is like this or Hudson is like cities that have mansions that don't refer to anything anymore. And, and, and I think there's a whole kind of funny literary, you know, Joyce was there and Wilco was there, but I've heard that it's a very melancholy, fascinating city. So I've wanted, I mean, every time I was in Europe with a little extra time and kind of depressed and standing in a train station, I would look up at all the cities on the thing and I would see Trieste and I would think now, you know, and, um, and so we're like, because, of Chelsea girls being um, liked, loved in France at this moment. I'm going to Toulouse for a literary festival in June. And I just saw this little crack of a week and I thought, I'm going to go to Trieste. So that is the most exciting thing coming up in my life. I'm just dying to, um, I'm dying to be in Trieste for a week and just see what happens and see what, what I write, what I feel. I, and it, luckily a friend from Marfa has friends who live there. So I even know some people, I mean, they haven't they haven't responded to my emails, but they're there supposedly. Nice, and yeah. you're still working on thousand page longer novel. Yeah, I, I need to deeply enter that dream, you know. But meanwhile, you know, I'm truly excited to like. I mean, I do. I love going around and giving readings. I, you know, it's part of there's something very monkish about being on tour. You know, it's like I bring my green tea, I bring my yoga mat. You know, like I have to like, I meditate. I'm like 
very disciplined on tour because otherwise I feel homeless and crazy, you know? And so there's something, the minimalism of touring, and then you get to, you know, sing each night, you know? So I'm, I'm excited about it. Yeah. Um, and I guess last question, you know, I, just kind of doing research for this, you've given so many interviews over the years, and I wonder if you've ever learned anything about yourself in the process of kind of doing an interview. I don't know. You know, like I think at this point in time, I'm all for, you know, it's weird when I, when I first came to Marfa and I was in a Lannan house and I, um, and I was finishing Afterglow, the book I was reading was Bob Dylan's interviews. And they were so great because he always said different things. He never said the same thing. It was kind of amazing. And I, and it really set me off. I, I think I got interviewed a lot that year, 2015, 2016. And I, I loved always saying different things, you know, but right now I'm all about repetition. I think it's cool. I mean, I struggle with it a lot in the novel. I think, what if I've told the story before? Is that okay? You know, but everybody, I mean, like, you know, I have a book of Robert Smithson's writings and he always says the same things. It's sort of like, it's almost like how you understand who he is is by his repetitions. And, you know, I remember in my twenties when I, you know, I'm, I tend towards depression as far, you know, I have many moods, but depression's a big one. And, um, and I remember the despair I felt as a young person because everything was, you know, you're always washing the dishes again, doing the laundry again, feeling this again, feeling. And now I just think that's, what's really great. I love repetition, you know? So even, even an interview, I feel like I'm not afraid to have said this before. <laughs> you know, It's like, who, who am I supposed to be? You know, like Bozo the Clown, you know, it's just, it's, it's sort of fun to actually not be afraid to, to be someone in particular, you know, I mean, I've surely landed by now, you know, so it's, it's not bad. It's not bad here, you know. All right. That was Jeff Allison Jerley's conversation with Eileen Miles. You can pick up Eileen's new book, A Working Life, wherever you buy books. And you can check out Phonograph Editions and their new imprint, Bunny, and all the books they have there. And don't forget about us at autofocuslit.com slash books. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.